I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Ryan Looper on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great, Levy. How are you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So you grew up in Texas? I did. I grew up in East Dallas. What was that like? East Dallas at the time was poverty, gangs, violence, drugs. I'm, a, I'm the son of a preacher man. My dad was a, an elder in a kind of a minister type in a non-denominational church called Redeemer's Fellowship. And I think that church was there to reach out to that community. It needed it. And at the same time, my mom was really highly lauded tennis player in high school and college. So when I was growing up, she was a tennis pro. And so I spent a lot of time on the tennis courts, a lot of time at church, and a fair amount of time running around that crazy neighborhood. Because that's kind of some different worlds there, probably. Totally. Totally. And it, it, was a, it, it was salty. You know, It was a rough neighborhood. I look back on it now. And I think to myself, what a gift that was. I had this church family that is still, I'm still friends with a lot of them. I have a great family myself, my dad, my brother, my mom, they're incredible people. And then I had this community that was predominantly Latino, uh, really trying to figure itself out, work out the problems. And we were there for that. And uh, I don't have the classic middle-class background. I was around a lot of different cultures and different sounds. And that's something that I, I walk around with today that I really enjoy. Things were maybe dangerous at times. Things were definitely dangerous. Lots of situations I've been in that, that are tough, but at the end, uh, kind of the final straw was I was in the front room of our house and a, a gunshot went over my head. And so my mom, she's like, like someone shot into your house. Mm -hmm. She was like, that's the kibosh. We're moving. Where'd you end up moving to? We moved uh, close to White Rock Lake, which is a much nicer neighborhood, and that's where I finished high school. And what was your dad like? My dad is an incredible guy, highly intellectual, quiet, writer, likes to read a lot. I'm sure you know about writers. I mean, Not really. <laughs> like to spend a lot of time on their own, but a really amazing guy, just high intellect and a good connector, and yeah, he's an incredible guy. What was your focus in high school? I mean, where were you gravitating towards? Who were you hanging out with? High school, 
I took me a moment to figure it out. I started athletics was always part of my, my life. So athletics helped. I did a fair amount of uh, singing and dancing in the, in the chorus, which was interesting. That's where I got exposed to one of my first real passions, which is opera. Opera is an amazing art form. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was in that choir room and this guy walked in, little guy, coiffed hair, definitely very confident. And he sang for us and I was sitting there listening to an amazing sound, lots of vibration, lots of resonance. And I'm thinking to myself, that's what I'm supposed to do. Did people sing in the church that your dad had? Yeah, the, the church music was part of the church and singing was always part of, of my life. So it, it's not as random as it sounds. It definitely follows in line with some things I was passionate about before. Music was part of the church. When I think of music resonance, I often think of you know, starting to understand subtlety, which can be helpful in the wine biz, right? Agreed. When you hear there's something about an operatic sound in a room, in a theater, that is different than, it's the opposite of auto-tuning. It's very truthful. It's got a lot of who that person is in it. And sometimes wine has a balance that's just so beautifully perfect. And you can hear that in a voice. When a voice is really balanced, it spins like a top. It has an energy to it. It has chiaroscuro, basically like clear and dark at the same time. And I think there are a lot of wines that I've experienced like that. You know, it's interesting. I found a big reception for opera in Texas. In college, my opera teacher was Texan. Really? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's oil money trying to be cultured or what. But that could be it. <laughs> There are a lot of Texan opera singers. I don't, I'm not kidding. I, I think it's, it's true. a thing. Yeah, it's definitely a thing. Like, I think there's probably an opera house and an opera school and, you know. Yeah, the uh, opera house and opera school, there's a very uh, beautiful new opera house in Dallas now. And there's Fort Worth and you've got Austin, you've got El Paso and Houston's a big deal. So yeah, it's culturally, it's part of the Texan thing, I guess. Never thought about it. It's true. So where did it end up taking you? I got pretty fixated. I was obsessed with it. I had studying all the time. I ended up getting a scholarship, a f very good scholarship to the University of Miami in Florida. And I spent four years there. Beautiful campus, Coral incredible Gables. Incredible campus, really good time. I probably studied too much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I should, have been, I should have been playing around a little bit more. Yeah, a lot of pretty girls. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, That's... it's a beautiful place to, to go to college, no doubt. I and, just walked through the campus one time. And just randomly, because I had some time to kill before I went to a restaurant job there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, pretty nice place. Yeah. If you were, you know, hetero, male, younger, <laughs> you know, not bad. I, I don't know. Yeah, it was it was a good time. I when I saw it, my dad and I were walking around the campus and we heard the orchestra playing and we went to the hall and I just it did it for me. They were so good. I was like, I have to come here. Interesting. I didn't know it was a music thing. What was that like? Very competitive. Uh, it has a really serious jazz school. Wynton Marsalis was a visiting professor there. I mean, I've heard Very of him. serious. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's all right. <laughs> yeah, classically, there was some serious people there. There are people, many people that still work today were with me at, at UM at that time. And got a lot of experience on stage. Got a lot of time in front of an orchestra. It was, it was cool. So how did the transition to New York happen? Well, I went to grad school 
in Boston. Oh, okay. I did the two years of, of operatic performance. And the second year, I took a restaurant job. Where was, was that? Beacon Hill Hotel and Bistro. Yeah, I remember that place. Because I, I used to live in Beacon Hill. Oh, really? Yeah, I went there uh, maybe once or twice that, to that restaurant. I totally lied to get the job. I had creative writing on the resume. And I was not ready. It was a little bit up in service. It was pretty fast. I had a European clientele. Um, some celebrities were coming in. I was not experienced with wine. I had no idea. At one point, I was opening a bottle of Burgundy, and I was so inexperienced. I was so behind. I stayed at the table. The cork clicked on me a little bit, and it popped open, and the wine sprayed on a guest or two. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah crazy, that's right? That's good times. You get big tips when that <laughs> yeah, happens. Yeah, big time. And the owner pulled Oh, me. did you want to taste that before I sprayed it all over you? <laughs> I can't even imagine what my face was like when that happened. No idea. May I pour this for you? Um, yeah, so the owner pulled me to the side. Peter, I believe that restaurant's still open. Probably. Yeah, I remember it being like a boutique hotel. He pulled me to the side and he said, this isn't for you. Uh, we'd like you to leave now. Yes. <laughs> Never come back. And I begged him, please let me work one more shift. So I came back for breakfast the next day. You didn't have it's to just, serve a lot of wine on that shift, oof. though, huh? But breakfast is brutal, right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. the egg service. It's the poached. It's the scrambled. It's, it's the amazing toast. how many ways people want eggs. Incredible. And imagine, I love Europeans, but imagine like a high European clientele, what they want for breakfast. At the end of that, I went to him and I said, uh, you're right. I'm not cut out for this. So I said, thank you. I walked out the door and my car had the boot on it. Oh, really? Like the when the, the police put the thing on for too many tickets? Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's a bad situation to be in. It was memorable, no doubt. I remember thinking, I should probably move to New York. Really how it happened. Probably shouldn't have sprayed that police officer with all that wine. <laughs> that guy from Boston PD traffic control. Yeah, that was insane. I, and I remember it, it was so expensive to get that boot off. I had to expedite it. I had no money. And I called my dad, like, can you help me move? So we moved to New York. He helped me move. And uh, I got, through a friend, I got a, an interview and a, a job offer from Carmine's. What's Carmine's? Carmine's, it's a second location. It's in Times Square. It's a pasta palace. Uh, you walk in, high ceilings, dark wood, black and white photos of Italians, Dean Martin, Tons of people go there. I mean, it's like packed. It's like the mafia version of Olive Garden. Oh, okay, okay. It's like, <laughs> and it's probably a, a pre-theater destination. Pre-theater, craziness at all times. I definitely got a piece of the golden handcuffs with that restaurant job. There was a lot of money flowing, a lot of cash. It's hard to get out. Hard to get out, and I was having a good time. I was learning a lot. I worked with great people. Get used to a certain lifestyle. Certain lifestyle. It was kind of like the, let's blow it out after we do the shift. Let's go to the gym the next day. Let's come back. Let's have a family meal and do it all over again. A lot of carbs. A lot of carbs. A lot of penny ale vodka. People would wait hours for a penny ale vodka and a frozen Cosmo. Seriously. Penny ale vodka has like six ingredients. Yeah. I, six I, ingredients. <laughs> sometimes when I get the store-bought kind, I'm a little disappointed though. I'm like, where's the vodka taste? You know? Do you remember the uh, blackout? 
No, what was that? There was a blackout in oh, New York. Oh, yeah, like I thought you meant like it was a drink or a type of pot. I was like, what? <laughs> the frozen blackout. Yeah, the frozen Have you ever had blackout. one of those? Yeah. Yeah, so it happened and I was working right around five o'clock, as I remember. This is to illustrate what Carmine's is like. So I'm in my station, I get the order, people come in, there's pre theater, blackout happens, boom. And the manager finally gets to me. Look, we're going to comp their drinks, but obviously meal is not going to happen. So I walk over to this table and I said, just so you know, seems like there's a blackout. We're not going to be serving any of your, your meal, but we'll, we'll comp all of your drinks. Uh, let us know if we can do anything else. And the woman looked up at me and she's like, you mean I'm not getting my penny on the vodka? <laughs> I feel like this is a very New York response. It's all, <laughs> you know what I mean? I waited two hours yeah, you've wronged for that Penny Alavaca. How could you do this? That yeah, was crazy. But That's I, Carmine's. You know, yeah, it's a long wait, though. Two hours. Two hours. But I learned a ton. I was working fast. I was dealing with, obviously, challenging clientele, time limits. Uh, the wine list had some gems on it. I started getting a little bit interested in wine. Started seeing things that beyond I, spraying it on people. But, like, <laughs> yes, we could do other things with this. <laughs> there was like a house Carmine's private label that everyone served all the time, and we were incentivized to. But I started getting interested in some of the other wines on the list. Quintarelli Bianco Secco. We used to sell that for thirty eight dollars. No way, really? Yeah, That's yeah, a pretty good price. Pretty sick price. I sound like an old man. No, Back but that would be day. like three times that now, or at least twice that. Two, you know, eighty yeah. bucks on the list probably. Yeah. For current vintage. Probably. It's definitely, well, it's a different situation now, right? Right, right, right. right. Quintarelli's sure, sure, a sure. mythical wine now. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, different importers and stuff. But I mean, you know. Totally. I, I bought one not too long ago, and I, I believe it was about 80-something. Wow. On a list. Okay. You know. Cool. When people come in and all they want is Pinot Grigio, to sell them Quintarelli Bianco Secco is pretty fun. Yeah. It becomes like yeah, a challenge. Like a challenge. Right? Yeah. So... That's what I took it as. I was selling Alianico, telling people it tasted like scotch, all sorts of stuff. Just trying to be sizing up a table quickly, getting a feel of it, trying to be that not annoying server where you're just enough involved, but that someone will remember you, but not like an integral part of their meal. That sort of waiter. Because I can imagine some Carmine's waiters really laying it on thick. And like, welcome to Carmine's. Oh my God. Bada boom, bada boom. Yeah, it's like, have a Titanic. Yeah, there were all these crazy things that people would do. Also, well, to be fair, to get people's attention in that restaurant with that, the decibels are high. You have to do a little bit of the, the cheese, the queso. But I tried to, I tried to explore the wine list and that was really fun for me. That's sort of where I kept coming back. And uh, I'm glad I did. I mean, when you're doing volume, eventually you're going to sell something to somebody, right? Right. And we started doing magnums, crazy amounts of magnums, which is really fun. These huge parties. So I'd come over and talk to the host, try and get them to buy something real. Yeah, it was cool. It's not, it definitely set me up for what I'm doing now. Just in terms of being calm and control in a, in a world of craziness. Yeah, you've seen that, that movie Man on Fire with Denzel? Yeah, 100%. It's like that. You're walking and the things are blowing up behind you. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, this is normal. <laughs> it's, like, it's true, though. I mean, Carmine's especially, it's bedlam in there. Yeah. I mean, it's That's insane. what I would imagine. No manager can right. manage you. Right, right, right. It's right. impossible. Right. Uh, and I was serving 70, 100 people a night right. myself. 
That's like the old tavern on the green days or totally. something like that. Just like that. Just like that. So how long were you there? Six years. That's a long time. I was trying to figure it out, man. I, I, I think I'm not alone in this. There's a lot of, a lot of people who get into restaurants. They're maybe going in an artistic way. They don't know how it's going to work out. You, you get going in one direction. You end up staying. I kind of got to my breaking point and I started looking at, I asked the wine director, what, what's going on with wine sales? Cause I'd served a couple wine sales people who came in. They looked like they were having a really good time. Yeah. It looked like they were doing all right. Yeah. 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 They were having a blast. Bring an extra bottle. Totally. We distribute this one. Totally. So I, I asked him for a couple recommendations and he gave me two and I added a couple others just by searching and it was Wildman some extension of Lauber, T. Edward, and Touton. So you went and interviewed at those places? I interviewed with all of them, and I felt pretty scared for all of them. I, I thought I knew something about wine, but it was obvious when I was talking to people that I, I really didn't know much. Sounds like you're in the uh, dive into the deep end of the pool kind of work experience uh, mindset when it comes to approaching new projects. Agreed. That's, that's how I'm built. I, I, I like that. I like the challenge. I've always liked challenge. So Wildman was interesting. They talked about a draw and uh, their portfolio was way over my head. Lauber, I met out in LaGuardia, at some hotel near LaGuardia. The guy was totally not my vibe. Super slick type of person. Be like, I got some keychains for you, that sort of thing. And then T. Edward. T. Edward, there was no AC. I remember that. I interviewed with two guys, Peter and Warren, Peter Cassell, Warren Frazier, and they're pretty hard on me. They tore apart, Peter especially, tore apart my resume. It was like, that's not true. That's not true. Carmine's isn't that busy. This is bullshit. And I walked out. I was like, that didn't go well. <laughs> and then I went to Tucson. It was the most probably the most slick in terms of offices. He has a nice big office that he used to. I have no idea what he has now, but uh, he was on the phone with France talking to me at the same time. He's a silver fox looking guy, very well dressed. And I went through the whole, I ended up taking the job with them. They offered me a job, went through the whole training. It's classic sales training. Here's your run. What do you do when the owner doesn't want to see you? That sort of stuff. What do you do? At the time, I had no clue. Uh, I was just like, you show up, uh, you try and be inobtrusive. I don't know. What do you do? Be like the, the tree in the school play. Yeah, just stand they, there long <laughs> enough till they acknowledge you. Be like water. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Find a spirit animal. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 there was no real answer for me then because I ab had absolutely no experience. I was kind of just trying to vibe with the situation and so I went through the whole training. I put my suit on. I was walking out for my first day. I was living in Woodside at the time. I got to the sidewalk and literally like a, like a jolt, like a bolt of lightning. It's like, you're not supposed to work at Tutong. My intuition, something that I rely on a lot. Is that true? Like in through your whole life, you've... Absolutely. My intuition has not steered me wrong. Because I find it's people go one way or the other usually. You know? Yeah. For me, it's been very, very important. And I trusted it. I went up. I didn't have a job, obviously. I was kind of going out on a limb. I called Tuton. I said, no, I'm, I'm not supposed to work for you. I'm sorry. They were pretty pissed because training is, takes a couple weeks. And they had the run already for me. 
And then I called T. Edward, the worst interview, and I said, I'm supposed to work for you. And they're like, we put a boot on your car. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I asked for bottom dollar. It's tough to say. I, would, I begged for a job. I did the salesperson beg, and they, they said yes. And uh, I'm lucky they did. So you start working with those guys, and what's that like? I had no run, which is different than what happens a lot now. So I had no accounts. I walked out the door with a portfolio, a bottle of wine, and it was like, go. Go find something. Figure it out. And I'm so thankful for that. That was totally the move for them. I, I, I think I learned so much just, I know I learned so much from all the rejection, walking in cold. I'm not naturally okay with cold calling so yeah I but to, you seem like a nice guy you seem endearing like you you know seem like eh, that's probably a good guy i yeah. mean to me thanks you know yeah I, I think in general that helped in general that helped me but also the climate of everything where there's a lot of salespeople running around even eight years ago it wasn't easy cold calling's tough cold calling's not for the faint of heart you have to get over approach anxiety once right. you're in, that's, that's, once you get in the place, you're fine. When it's you the have the approach. relationship. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Relationship can take a long, long time. It's taken me years to form really good relationships. Because I've talked to people and they're like, yeah, if you're thinking about going into like distribution sales, don't think about making any serious money for like a couple of years. You know? It's true. It's true. It's a commitment. It takes philosophy. If you can hold on to something at the end of the day and you have grit and you listen at all, you need to be a good listener. Is that true? Yeah. Now that's, a, that's a must. If I was building like a Terminator salesperson, it would be intuition, philosophy, grit, listener. So you're not necessarily going in and being like, let me tell you what's going to be hot. You're no. like, no. You go in and you're like, the guy's complaining about his shift and his boss and the, you know, he can't get more budget and you're just like, yeah. Yeah. Can I sell you some stuff? Yeah. That's the worst move ever. Yeah. It's right. so bad. Right. It's like, Hey, you know, I can't even make budget. Oh my God. Yeah. Can I sell you five cases of something? It's horrible. I mean, I, I, and I see that happen, which is crazy. It happens a lot. Yeah. Sales at the time starting out, I just beat the streets. I just went out to neighborhoods where people weren't going. You kind of scoped out whole neighborhoods? That's the only way to do it. You cannot armchair this. You cannot spreadsheet this. People want to try. And I, I don't think there's an algorithm out there for how to sample wine, how to have the right thing all the time, how to, how to be in the right place all the time. I think it's a full-on experiential thing. So what moved you to certain neighborhoods or not? Logistics. T. Edward was not doing business in certain neighborhoods. I was so lucky. I went to East Village where there were some restaurants that do okay, high volume. And I've heard of Momofuku, for example. Right. There's you know. a bunch of restaurants over there, and I started doing business, and then the economy tanked. And all of the all Midtown the town places had a hard time. They had a tough time, and the places in the East Village, they did all right. I also made a, a decision to work with more retail after a couple of years. I, I made it known that I wanted to work with more retail. And why is that? You need a balance. You just need a balance. There's so much that you can't control in this business. There, there is no control, literally. Well, it's also been a volatile decade, right? I mean, been I a think. volatile decade, for sure. And having a balance, 
not some stupid number like 50-50, but some retail and some restaurants is important. Because I know a lot of salespeople who don't. I know a lot of salespeople who are like, I only do hotels. I only do restaurants. I only do retail. That's got to be incredible. I mean, my hat's off to them. That's got to be incredibly stressful. And it's also, you know, the landscape is some people are 100% commissioned. Some people aren't. Some people work for a company with giant amounts of spendy cash and tons of wine, and some people don't. It's also through the lens of your portfolio, right? If you don't have wine to sell, it's tough to sell to hotels. Right, right. Yeah, like quantity. Yeah, you you have to to have quantity. To walk in there, you need to know, unless you're going for the the sherry pour. I don't know. Right, (laughs) right. The thing that doesn't sell. Yeah, I mean, I love sherry, but that that's a great example. Of, you go into a hotel, if you don't have real quantity of wine, there's only so much you can do. What's the difference between retail and restaurant on the distribution side? I mean, as a salesman, what, what's different about those two things? Retail is documentary. Restaurant is action film. It's a lot more thoughtful and slow in retail. It doesn't change as quickly. There's not as much turnover. Restaurant, it's like a Stallone film, man. It's explosions. It's shower scenes. It's the whole deal. You have like, exciting, charismatic figures who then disappear. Exactly. Like as buyers. Yeah. And, and the, the undercurrent of that, I think we can all agree that turnovers up, buyers are younger. That's pretty much out there. The undercurrent is this vibrancy in the market. There's so much opening up. There's better wine. There's more types of distribution. You can find little ways to sell wine that you couldn't maybe eight, 10 years ago. It's really exciting. It's very exciting. And there, buyers are more educated wine-wise, especially at the mid to upper tier. They are more educated. They're on the, the court track. They're, they're studying. They have people that they look up to, which I think is important. Maybe that hasn't been... Uh, with the connectivity of social media that hasn't been like in the past, you didn't connect to those people as easily unless you met them. Now you can follow somebody and you get a feel on what they like. So like virtual mentor. Absolutely. And also I think it's important to say that the buyers are really interested in wine. They're more interested than they were. I think there's just a broader scope. And there's a broader scope offered. So here we are. I think we're on the precipice of something really special because there'll be all the sommelier, the celebrity of sommelier will be coming. It's going to be reality shows. It's a connection to the chef celebrity. It's an extension. And I think that's a, it has good, it has bad, but in general, it's a good thing. But you've seen a lot of, you've seen a lot of movement in terms of, oh, dude was here. Dude's not here anymore. Somebody knew. Yeah. That kind of thing. I guess that's what happens in volatile time periods. Volatile time period. I also think there's not as much of a, while there is a big emphasis on the education with wine, the, you know, you'll meet a lot of people can serve a table beautifully a lot. And they're very talented at it. Wine director wise, that side of the industry has not been studied as much. It's the other side of the coin, how to form a program, how to work with these crazy distributors and suppliers how do uh, the architecture of a wine list? So, like, what does that mean? The technical skills that aren't knowing about wine. Exactly. There's no real place where you can go to say, as like, of now, how do you structure a wine list? How do you make money on this? How do you mark exactly. that up? Do you find that? No, I, those are the questions I always wondered about. 
but I, I found that very doing this show, mm-hmm. I thought more people would want to talk about that. Usually, no. I think it's very interesting because it's it is in my mind just as important. It's the other side of the coin of all those beautiful service things: being able to blind a wine, being able to know the technical aspects, being able to connect. That's what it's all about, right? You want to connect to somebody, connect a wine to somebody. That's what I think the goal is, and. So you connect to the consumer, but also you need to know how to form that frame to connect it to the consumer too, which is all those little things that, yeah, it's annoying to talk about, but I think it's really important because you want to be able to talk to your owner in a way that says, this is why I'm doing this. This is why the numbers look this way. This is why I'm pouring this. When you do that, most owners are pretty cool with that. Well, I found a lot of owners didn't know enough to be able to understand what I was saying. About most, the wines. Most yeah. don't. So that, most that's don't. probably why there was less of that kind of education. I, I think a lot of it is like how people hire bartenders now. Because they're mm-hmm. like, oh, we see that mixology is booming. We need a couple mixologists. Can you do it? Okay, good. You know, and they throw the guy back there. And I'm not talking about the groundbreaking places. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the places a step or two behind those who see a lot of money and they're like, hey, you go and do it. You seem interested in mixology. And they're like, uh, he's doing it. He's doing the mixology thing. But they're not really, it's not like they're having a conversation about how that really happens. Sure. That's that's how the 90s was with sommiers. They were like, oh, you, you just go be the wine guy. You, you know something about wine. Like they, there was more sales than people. So they just threw you at it. And now what you see is cottage industry going to big industry. You see cottage industry becoming restaurant groups. So now people are like, oh, well, what makes money? How can we shave costs and stuff like that in wine? Eventually, I imagine that'll happen with bars too, you know, where people will own a lot of places that do high-end mixology. I mean, I guess they already do. And they'll be like, oh, well, here are the pourers and stuff. But I don't think there's a lot of times outside of a couple of groups where sommelier with a question goes and talks to boss who may be a sommelier about like, how do I do this? More, it's like you're supposed to seem like you're confident at all times. Otherwise, you might open the door to all kinds of questions about what you're doing. Yeah. In a way, though, the community of the the wine buyer and salespeople, it's everybody. It's all together. I think that'd be a nice conversation to start having. Is like, how do we do this better on a business side? Not just, and that sounds terrible. It sounds like I'm spreadsheeting it. But I also mean just it's part of your day-to-day process. Well, I think if that happened, then you'd probably see um, lower prices ultimately because people would uh, have better business practices. And Agreed. And I think one of the things that's hurting wine right now is that it's being priced out of uh, segments. I think that's totally true. I think you've seen the library wine list. It's still around. You've seen the prices go up in the top tier. You've seen wine by the glass expand across the board. I see more wines being poured than ever before. That can be a good and a bad thing. It can take focus away, but it can also give everybody what they want. I guess that's the goal. It's really interesting. I think wine lists will continue to get smaller first and hopefully pricing. Well, I know pricing will get better on wine lists. It's going to happen. You still have quite a few big wine lists in the city that are of prominence. I mean, some people might even say that bigger can come off better. But for me, it's a balance of both, right? It's whether it fits with the restaurant, whether it's resonant with that space, whether 
it goes with the food, whether the wines actually turn over. I mean, if the wines are there forever, then you know, there's no margin on a wine that just sits there unless you really want it to stay there. So that's, it's really interesting. So what was that philosophy part that you developed when you hit the street? What did that consist of? Early on, I saw the temptation to swerve and be not open about pricing, what you have, play games. And I just decided that that wouldn't work for me personally. You wanted some transparency. I had to. I, had, I, I wanted to sleep at night. For one, I'm, my conscience is huge. And I just think it's better to let people, I just think it's better to let people know. Be open, be honest, genuine. You'll be better off. Also, what are we doing? I'm walking around, I'm going to get a sale, and then I'm going to walk away like I didn't just game you and then come back again. I don't know. I, I wouldn't feel good doing that. I, I wouldn't like it if a sommelier I was sitting at a table was dishonest with me about a wine. Sure. And I would hate it if I was a salesperson that was dishonest with that sommelier. It's, it's all a big chain, right? We're trying to sell wine together that in a beautiful, honest way. It really can work out long term. That's, that's what I believe. I've always felt like that's part of the community that I really enjoy. If I really believe in something and I have a, a strong feeling that it'll work for you, I bring it to you or I mention it to you, you work with it and you go, yeah, that really does work. And hey, this customer really likes that. And now they're connected to it. So did you have certain mentors early on that kind of showed you the way? I had a few mentors. John Coyle at T. Edward, really great guy, very great mentor, someone who I, I basically ch have chased what he's done at, at T. Edward, really talented sales guy, very funny guy. So you kind of said like, oh, that's somebody I need to kind of emulate. I saw him as someone to emulate. I, I met Dan Lerner early on. Daniel gave me some great advice. He said, don't take this too seriously. Right. I think he saw that I was the type of person that could take could it too seriously. Could wind around very tightly. Yeah. But I, I was someone who was going to get so focused that it might be a problem. And he told me that. That's worked out really well. Andre Tamers of De Maison Selections, incredibly talented, artistic, possibly a genius, a mad genius when it comes to importing wine and been around forever. Someone who took me under his wing. I had lots. Buyers. Tons of buyers have showed me things from Chris Goodhart. Who what was, was he like? Chris Goodhart, a really honest guy, very nice guy, very experienced. I brought him a wine for our first meeting that made absolutely no sense for any restaurant. I was so green, and he sort of directed me in a soft and beautiful way how not to do that. And... I think that set those set, people set me in in the right path. That that was I was going in the right direction with that type of influence. Scott Pactor at Appalachian, people that you know just were asking questions that made me think differently. What are some of the other best practices? I mean, what what became part of what was important to you? I think not emailing too much. We're talking semantics here, but well, it's a delicate balance. It is a delicate balance, much like being a, a server at Carmine's where you have, you, I wanted to be that person who was just enough involved, but not too involved. I just don't want to make it about me. So anytime I have my rules are like, if I have an email to write, it has to have a reason. 
And if I have a phone call to make, it has to have a reason. And otherwise, I, I tried to put connection in front of sales. I think that's much more important. It's hard to quantify what that really means. I think it's a little bit of a mystery. But I found that connecting with people is really the much more fun than sitting around and trying to sell people shit all the time. It's probably a more enduring thing in an era of market change. Yeah. It allows you to kind of have core principles that aren't related to specific skews that might change. Absolutely. And the, that's, that's really what it's all about in the end. I mean, I knew that things were going to change dramatically, just intuitively. It was always going to be changing. You cannot be perfect. Well, that's the other thing that I, I really am very grateful about with wine is I'm humbled often by it. You can't know everything. You can always have curiosity. You can always be learning something. That's, that's another core principle. Just be curious and, and be willing to learn something. Because even you know, if I'm just worried about whether I'm selling three cases of something or not, what, what the hell am I doing? It's a big waste of time. I have a lot of friends, and it doesn't matter you know, how much business is done or whether I even work with them. But I'm really lucky that wine has connected us. It's really something quite special. And you met your wife through wine. I did. My wife, when I was working at Carmine's, I used to come home late. I would watch TV because I was all amped up. There was this reality show called To Live and Date in New York Season 2. It's exactly what I should have been watching. And it was a trashy show. You know, it was late night. And there was one person on that show, this one woman that was really vivacious, beautiful. And I was like, that's the dateable one. I used to watch that show and that, that's what I would, I would look for her. Years later, the first year I was selling wine, I walked into a store on the Upper West Side and I didn't have an appointment. It was a cold call. And this woman looked up at me. She said, you don't have an appointment. Get out. And I would walk down the street. I'm very emotional. So I was, I was at that moment where I was like, oh, what am I doing? So I like tears, tears were forming upper West side tears. I go to central park. I'm thinking, do I quit this? This was early on and I was really getting beat up. I quit this. Do I go down? I can always go back to Carmine's. And I didn't quit. I decided to stick it out. And a year later I was in a different place. I was a lot more confident. I knew the book. I knew kind of, I'd been beat up a little bit more. So I knew how to handle it. And I actually had an appointment this time and I walked in and the same woman that has, had kicked me out, I recognized from that reality show as the dateable one. And I asked her if she'd ever been on TV. She got really embarrassed and she said, yes. I and find that's the common reality show reaction <laughs> when you call someone out for being on a reality show. Yes. They're usually not super proud. They're not know? like, I have this creatine vodka and now it's got my name on it. Yeah. She, this was before you could get famous. With she gets recognized, but it's not like now where you can get famous. It's a gateway. But so yeah, now we're married. It's awesome. She's amazing. Does she's, she still throw you out sometimes? She's like, yeah, no, you have no appointment at the she apartment should. right now. She should. <laughs> get out of here. You don't. You didn't make an appointment to be in the kitchen right now. Yeah, she's she's something else. She definitely. What's great is she understands because being a sales rep and what I'm describing, you have to be out. It's part of the job. She's very understanding about that. I could see that being tough if you had a, like a stay at home kind of relationship. Totally. It's 
Like I said, I mean, you cannot do this with a spreadsheet. You have to be out. It moves too fast. A lot of times I find that people who kind of blur the line between customer and salesperson do pretty well. You know, people who show up, yes, I'm your salesperson. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm actually here for, I'm having dinner tonight. You know, because in the sommelier, it puts you in a different relationship to that person. Because you want to please them if you're a customer, but if they're just a salesperson, you don't need to please them. I agree. I think that's true. That's a common approach. I like that approach. It can put you in the friend zone, which is not really the best zone to be in. But in general, that is much better than the aggressive way. Some people, you have to grab them by the arm a little bit. It's important. If you really believe in what you're selling to them, what you have to offer, you you have to say, hey, what's up? You also have to know when to move on. That's something that people don't do very well, at least on my side, I think. My impression is that we don't do it very well, and you should. Sometimes it's just not meant to be. It's like dating. You have a relationship with this person, maybe it's just not working. And if you're selling a queso a month to some place, maybe it's just not worth your time. Like maybe you could spend that time selling 40 cases to some other account because there's only so many minutes in the day, right? Totally. It, it becomes a, a game of time in a way. You want to spend time on what's important. However, sometimes you love working with someone who buys a couple cases a month so much and they're so cool to hang out with that you don't want to give that account up. Can't always be about the, the number, right? So yeah, it's a balance. It's really... It's delicate, but it's, it's, it's about shaping it for your life. You could, I could literally work 24 hours a day. That's the long-term play, to shape it for your life. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, ima- I can imagine you doing it differently for a few years. But At the, the beginning, long- you have to really hoof it. But as you get it developed, it's something where you have to shape, you have to have boundaries. It's like any you know, business. It's like being a sommelier, too. It's the same thing. You have to have boundaries at some point, right? You can't just always be there. Um, I, I do love the idea of that balance. It's hard to achieve because you're, there's so many moving parts. I always say, I, I'm training a salesperson. At the moment you're about to get your ducks in a row, one duck will get knocked out. Wine is the type of wine that I like, the type of wine that I'm lucky enough to sell. It doesn't last forever. You know, there's not that, sometimes it just runs out. What can you do? And if that's your attitude, if you're willing to roll improvisation, if you're willing to roll with it, you're good. It's like being a good sideman, right? It's like being in a jazz situation where you're playing along and everyone's, if you make a mistake, cool, we just keep moving. Because sometimes I feel in that kind of relationship, what happens is the buyers, the sommeliers or the retailers are like, oh shit, I didn't take care of this. I'm going to drop it on dude last minute, Friday at 4.45. To, and then it's your fault if it doesn't happen. You know, that kind of thing. So like, I feel like because of that's the relationship you have, if on one part of the chain, like I's are not dotted and T's are not crossed, that can suddenly mean a lot of work for you. It can. And I, I know that People roll with this all the time. This happens all the time. I think the best answer is you decide whether you want to help them out or not. It has to be, it can't be a one-way relationship. Someone pulls out once or twice. I've had people 
pull that once, twice, three times. And I've had to say, look, this isn't working for me. I'm sorry. I, I cut 20 accounts every year. My angle is I need to make sure that I have a manageable number of accounts because the detail work is high. You want, I want it to seem like I don't put things on hold. I like seamless. I want it to feel seamless to the accounts, the people that I work with. That's important to me. And only a certain number you can do that. Once you get, it depends on the portfolio, obviously. It's all through that lens. But once you get to a certain number, it's hard to catch everything or even a portion of things. So I cut 20 for, or 30 for good reason. I want to pass along to people that could give them more attention because obviously I can't, in some instances, give the attention that's needed. And two, I just I want to be able to manage the accounts and the, be able to work well with the wine buyers that I have. That's, a, that's really important. It feels seamless. Normally, it's pretty good. What's the book like? What's the T. Edward book like? Dramatically different than it was when I started. How so? A lot more quality wine. A lot more real producers. Some gems. Some things that are conversation starters. Yeah, it, I think T. Edward was started with the idea, one page, let's get some wine out there. And over the last eight years, it's gone much more quality. Because uh, originally, the guy, one of the guys used to work for Tutom. Yeah, so Tom, Tom Burns, T. Edward himself, was a Tutom guy. Actually, he took over Andre Tamer's group of accounts. When Andre used to work for Tutom also. When Andre left to go to art school in Spain, Tom took his run and yeah, he started T. Edward 21 years ago and used that name so he could start it while he was working at Tutong. Oh, so it it wasn't like Burns or something. Exactly. Exactly. That's at least that's what I understand. Yeah, it's changed a lot. There's a lot more quality wine. It's a lot. It's maybe 300, 400 skews more, bigger. Better reputation, I believe. I think it's changed dramatically over the last, especially the last five years. Has that had to do with the idea of bringing in producers who made less quantity of wine? In some cases, yes. I think some of the salespeople that were starting to become more successful in the company were calling for more quality wine. And they listened. That's where the market was going. Yeah. And the market is definitely full force that direction all in the quality wine market in New York. I can't speak broadly, but in New York quality wine, that's where we're going. And were there specific signposts along the way that you said, Oh, this seems like a significant moment with this company. At one point we all trained to ride a stage of the tour de France or a a partial stage of the tour de France. That seems like an interesting idea for a company based in New York. That's the other part about T. Edward that I should probably mention is that it was formed from a cultural idea as an, people that look out for each other, basically. And I think that sort of was fed by this idea. Later on, we went to train. We all got Cannondale bikes. We trained. We rode up this uncategorized climb together. Everybody made it. And that changed the dynamic. People galvanize, you know, galvanize the company, I think. Yeah. You guys got along better after. 
got along better. We were already getting along well. There's a lot of great people at T. Edward. That's the lifeblood of that company. Great people, fun people, people that I hang out with even when I'm not talking about work. That's the lifeblood. And it changed. Yeah, it did change after that. We started a little bit of a snowball effect with quality wine and thinking more highly, a little more confidence, a little, a little bit more confidence. And that's gone a long way. What about recession and economy ups and downs? Where have those fallen in on the, the uh, spectrum of the T Edwards history? Well, the office was by the twin towers. So I know that was a really tough time. I was not there obviously at that time, but since I've been there, it's been gangbusters, great business every year. I think that's rare. I think that's really rare in this market to have been going gangbusters since 07. Including a recessionary time. Including recession, including little yips and problems. That's a rare thing. I wish I could. It's a little bit mysterious. I wish I could say it was one particular thing that allowed us to. Well, now that I think about it, it's the people. That's it. But I mean... You got Matthiasen right before he blew up and became really big and right about the time that he was developing some quantity to sell. Yeah. That was perfect timing, no doubt. Tomers, right when Sherry started to see some resurgence and he's got several Sherrys in his portfolio that are good good producers. Tamers definitely helped. Cho- the Chocolate thing helped. Sherry helped. Champagne helped. Biacar Samon. A lot of things. Categories. Matthias and yeah, that's a strong one. It's those wines. I, I really, really enjoy. And when did you first meet Steve? I met Steve when we did our first work with, it was the, he had just switched to T Edward and I met him and we went around. I really liked him immediately. Very soft-spoken, honest, obviously brilliant, experienced. And the wines were just tipping into really good and that's perfect time perfect perfect time to have matthiasen in the book what was that work with like i mean when you went to talk to customers what did they tell you they said that they'd never tasted the wines but they'd heard of them and it was huge because every every account bought which to this day it's probably one of only a couple times that that's happened to me the work with has become a totally different animal. So when you have one where people want to see the person and they buy the wines, it's that's like hitting the lottery. Because <laughs> a lot of times I feel like the New York buyer doesn't like to say the order in front of the producer. So kind of a it's New true. York quirk. If I were buying, I wouldn't want to. Right. I think that'd be weird. But I, in that moment, the wines were so resonant that people were like, I want to get behind this. That's cool. He's, he's really doing something special. I believe in him. I was just going to say that's a huge feather in the cap when you really believe in a wine and you're walking around. That makes a huge difference. It's not a chip on the shoulder. It's a belief. And that, that sure makes it easier to connect someone to a wine. So I imagine if, if a buyer's looking through your portfolio thinking, do I need to call these guys or not? Matthias and Bia Card Salmon might be a big help with that where those are get you in the door kind of wines. It helps. Also, 
what's changed in the market now, there was a long allocation game thing happening for years. I used to run up against it all the time. Now it's totally different. What do you mean by that? I mean that there's still limited availability wines and there's, there are still the same anatomy to it, but you have many different distributors, many new importers, and a lot of them have a couple things that are viable. Maybe back in the day, that wasn't the case. Maybe, I don't know what your experience was like 10 years ago buying, but probably a smaller group of distributors that you could really focus on and that would be you know, easy. Now, it's more, it's more about what it's like to work with them, really, because everyone has some sort of wine that's worth buying. That's the difference. People don't see it very clearly, I think, but that, to me, that's the difference. Consumers don't see it or people in the business don't see it? People in the business. Also, it's a, it's a little bit of a paradox because you still have only so much time in the day and there's only so many people you can work with. So on Thursday, when that stuff is going down and you need some things for Friday, how many people can you really work with? So it's a paradox. You have to really choose. It's a different time now. But I also think it would be different if you worked in a different state and uh, retail chains were involved or supermarkets and one guy called you up to place an order for like 40 stores. Different game, right? Different game, different idea, probably different process. I would approach that very differently than I approach the day-to-day now. Because there's really nothing like that in New York except for hotels where someone might say, okay, well, send the five pallets over. You know what I mean? Sure. Not as much quality wine, though. Right. That's the one difference, is that I, I believe that other states, some of those supermarkets take positions on quality wine. And here, hotels, sure, there's some quality wine sold, for sure, but it's not, it's not quite the same. I feel like uh, both restaurants and retail are pretty vibrant, where in a lot of markets you find one or the other being really vibrant. It's amazing. I look around right now and pinch yourself if you're in the wine business in New York. It's as good as I've seen it. The retailers are doing amazing work. You find all sorts of wine. It's, it's totally opened up. I mean, who thought Grand Jay would be a big deal? But you taste those wines, they're really good. I mean, it's really opened up. And restaurants are being more adventurous. And that's really a good thing. And you see that as generational or what? When you talk to the buyers? I think it's generational. I think it's also offering. It's just exploded. There's so much available. You can really find what you want. You've got 750. You've got all these things that have connected the dots of wine that used to be a lot harder to find stuff before. Now you can find it. I, I love it. It's, you can go out and not be bored every single night amazing where do you think the buyer is going to go i mean what happens from here it's a great question the buyer is going to be given tools that will streamline their process i would imagine that'll happen in the next year it will be faster you will have a faster connection to your wine list you have a faster connection to all the logistics all the back-end stuff inventory there's going to be a tool The wine buyer is going to go on more trips. They're going to continue to travel. There will be more sommelier teams. This is 30-40% of restaurants' revenue sometimes, these beverage programs. People will invest in that. I think 
you're going to see also this celebrity thing, the, the celebrity side of sommeliers, which is overall a good thing. It's just going to make the, a lot of people want to be sommeliers. So it's going to be a very vibrant, streamlined time where the question will be, how do I connect these wines in my program to my staff and to the consumer better than I did before? So you mentioned travel for buyers. How about travel for yourself? Have you had key moments in traveling where you felt that there was something special happening? Many. Very lucky. That's another thing about T. Edward. Everybody travels. Meet a T. Edward person. They've probably been to every major European country to taste wine. One of the major moments I had, I went to Spain with Andre. We went to Dofredo, Gerardo Mendez's property, Maria Spicius. And we sat there and we tasted old vintage Albarino, his really old vine Albarino. We tasted it out of the body of a a spider crab. It was really a moment where... Never done anything like that. that. It was awesome. And it made me think that Albarino has... I was missing something about it. And that's what I was missing. Very, very beautiful moment. I love Piemonte also. I know you do too. I've had incredible moments in Piemonte in cellars where that wine, it's like hearing an incredibly beautiful voice in a theater. It's that good. The balance of it. Beppe Rinaldi is very, I love those wines. And tasting in that cellar, insane. So you come back and how is the pricing structure affecting the market? In terms of classic wines getting more expensive, less emphasis on branded wines, which you would think would be cheaper. So where is the price come in on the lever of the market? It is driving interest in other regions because the pricing, you're absolutely right, in the really classic pedigreed appellations are going up across the board. So you see some AC wines in France. You see a lot of Burgundy, Bourgogne Rouge. You see pricing around the $20 range for me is the hot point for a lot of these wines that are the daily wines. That's wholesale. Is that kind of the cutoff for wine by the glass in that neighborhood? Right there. It can go higher, but right there is where you you see a really hot, it's very alive. And below, I mean, always the inexpensive wines sell to some degree, but right at $20, you have a $20 Napa Cabernet right now? Oh, yeah. That's good. You You are crushing it. Yeah. That's from a real vineyard. Yeah, you're crushing it. I think that's true. I see people asking or interested in things like Chore Le Bon or things that are not typical that two years ago, maybe someone was asking me for something else. Now they're looking at those appellations. Also, I have to say that I see Spain, big upside in Spain. White wine still hasn't really taken hold. Spain's still coming out of all the the BS that that happened years ago. There's a lot of upside to Spain. What other regions are drawing you in in terms of your finding resonance in the market? Well, Loire Valley is on a 10-year run like nobody's business. And I went to Angers, Renaissance des Appellations last year. I went to Die Bouteille. And there are still wines to be found, which is crazy to me. Sure, they might be the, the 31st cousin of Clos Rougeard, but there's wine out there. It's relatively inexpensive, and it's very, very good. That's one that's insane to me. 
I was there. I kind of regretted not having been at Dive or in the Loire Valley before then because there's just so much good. Sparkling wine. Sparkling wine is on another run. You see the growers have finally caught hold a little bit, especially in New York. You see Prosecco, giant run. I could see Cremant. I could see more. Petnat's a big deal. Hasn't really caught, but Petnat is a big deal. California. There's still a lot in California that people don't know. And that's... I think that covers a lot of what I see. It's very exciting. I think a lot of times, especially from outsiders or people in other states... Sommeliers are criticized as like buying sommelier wines or buying wines that their friends are going to like or that they're only going to serve to other sommeliers. So when you sell to both restaurants and retail, do you see some of that effect or is that more a mirage or do the general trends also mimic the sommelier trends or are those two different things? I think they operate independently of each other. I think there are some wines that people put on the Insta a lot that everyone wants to have. That's natural. Scarcity will drive things all the time. What they may not be talking about, but they're doing, is putting on a really great Cremant de Bourgogne that is beautiful and sells like crazy. They may not be Instagramming that. I think it's, I think it's both. I think it's good. So it's like that social media thing. Like I only want to project certain attributes of my personality, so I'm going to put those on social media. And I only want to project certain wines in my collection, I may not tell you about the Prosecco that I'm selling sure. out the door crazy, but I'm probably going to tell you about the Loire Valley. Makes a lot of sense to me. That's what I see. I see people. It's natural to want to put out the, the crazy scarce wines, especially when you see the top sommeliers doing it. And they probably have access to a little bit more of that than you do. Guaranteed. Right? Right. <laughs> so they might have 10, 12 bottles of this crazy thing and you might get two. And so it's, I don't hate on it. I get tired of bottle shots sometimes. Sure. I think everybody does. But also you have to realize that everybody's looking at this stuff. There's a lot of wine on lists that's really beautiful and good. That's not Auvergne. I promise. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. And I know you, look, you go out all the time, right? Or a, re a relative amount of times. You see other wines that people don't touch that are quite beautiful or that people don't talk about. Well, one of them beautiful. used to be Auvergne. Used to be right. not touched, you know. Yeah. Clos well, also used to be not touched. Absolutely. Rosé is completely off the charts. I need to mention that because I never thought it could get bigger. And it's so big. Rosé is huge in New York. And I would hate to be allocating rosé because you'd feel like that small restaurant with 200 people outside banging on the door, please let me in, and you could never let them in. That's what allocating rosé must feel like. You need some wine to sell. Yeah, you bring up a good question circling back to the two different things going on with Instagram and just with top sommelier focus and other wines. I just love the fact that there's always going to be some mystery. But you're thinking it's trickling down. You think that some buyers are looking at other buyers' Instagram feeds and no doubt acting on it. Because you know, as an Instagram user, it's hard for me to know that. It has a big effect on the market. 
you'll have someone put a picture out and all of a sudden, if they're a really respected sommelier, not that it sells out, but people, I, I've noticed people talk to me about those wines. Even if they've never had them, they'll say something like, oh, Dovisat, five. That's, and I'm not hating on it. I think people should be interested in these wines, but also you have to realize that the wine world is huge. and There's all sorts of undiscovered gems still out there. You know, I like those wines, but I like other wines too. It's not so far away from the, uh, the Parker deal because plagiarism was a big part of Parker's success. You know, people could say like, oh, you know, everyone knows Clarendon Hills is awesome. Now, Australis, 01 or whatever. That's you know, dead on. You know what I mean? There's something to that. Like you could copy the knowledge. You could cut and paste and be like, yeah, well, you know. Absolutely. You don't want a goodwill hunting this thing, right? You don't want to be just spouting the information that everyone else is spouting experience counts well i think that experience gets you a better buy because if you're always at that end of the tail then you're always getting wagged and you're always paying more agreed if that's where it's coming from i think you're always at the the bad end of the market you know you're always trying to sell wine that you bought for too much for too much yeah eventually there's a cap to that you said that things are going to become easier on the back end for the buyer. Where do you see it going for the seller? I mean, there's a lot of people pounding the pavement, a lot of small companies. Sometimes they have two, three people working at this company that imports a significant amount of wine in terms of SKUs. What's going to happen to people in your role in a few years? I could see this getting pretty tight in the next couple of years. The ones with dialogue, the ones who innovate, win. The ones who do the same thing they did before, win I mean in quotes, they do well. The ones who just continue doing the same old, same old, not going to work. It's going to get tight. Ryan Looper of T. Edwards, he finds the resonance of wine is echoed in the resonance of voice. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks a lot, Levy. Ryan Looper of T. Edward Wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com that's i-l-l drink to that p-o-d.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating you can donate from anywhere using paypal or stripe on the show website remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app please that's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening